Well, the first thing I want to do is uh, say hi, not just to you who are at this assembly, but to all of our people who are meeting uh, in other assemblies on Sunday, all three of our assemblies, because uh, if you're at one of those assemblies, you are right now watching me on video. And the reason you are watching me on video is because uh, I am teaching for the first time at Southlake Church, and uh, we are very excited about our partnership with our brothers and sisters there. And so I will be back in person at all of our assemblies the following weekend, but uh, a lot of you are watching now on video, and I appreciate your understanding why I'm somewhere else. I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about this series, God with us. We're going to take three weeks and we're going to look at every single word because every word in that name of Jesus is powerful. Now, I want to start with a story I heard of a man that went to see a doctor. And after a number of tests, the doctor came back and he had three bottles of pills. He said, all right. I want you, when you get up in the morning, to take this red pill with a big glass of water. And then after lunch, I want you to take this green pill with a big glass of water. And then just before you go to bed, I want you to take this blue pill with a big glass of water. And the man said, my goodness, doctor, what's the problem? He said, you're not drinking enough water. Now, the point is sometimes the very thing we need the most, the thing that ought to be the most obvious is the thing we fail to notice. And that happens a lot during the Christmas season. Even those who claim to follow Jesus often fail to notice the most startling claim about his birth. Matthew chapter 1, Joseph has gotten the news that his betrothed, his beloved Mary, is pregnant. And Joseph knows he is not the father. And because he loves Mary, and because he's a righteous man, he plans just to quietly put her away and not go through with the wedding they've planned since they were children. We're starting now in verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I know a lot of people in the next few weeks are going to say, we need to put Christ back into Christmas. I've got no problem with that. But what I'm contending right now is that we need to put God back into Christmas. The unique name given to him at his birth is God with us. That's the question. 
Was the baby that Mary was holding the very one who is holding all things together? Because if that is true, then the implications for all other religions are profound. You see, today people shy away from discussing doctrine. Because we live in an age where the number one virtue is not truth, it is tolerance. And so we don't want to talk about doctrine because doctrine by its very essence distinguishes. But the problem is Christmas is particularly doctrinal. If God became flesh, then all other notions about God become irrelevant. Now, I know that's not politically correct to say that, but I think it is absolutely sensible. If God became flesh, then all other ideas about God are irrelevant. David Platt, who last year wrote this wonderful book called Radical, talks about being in Indonesia. And he was at a Buddhist temple. And he was engaged in this lively discussion with a Buddhist monk and a a Muslim uh, leader. And they were talking rather excitedly about how all religions are basically the same. That we have some unique differences, but at the end of the day, we all have the same goal. And so David said to them, I I think if I understand what you're saying, is that it's as if God is on top of this big mountain. And we're all trying to get up to God. And you might go on one side of the mountain, and I might go on another side of the mountain. But at the end of the day, we're all going to get up the mountain to God. And they shook their heads. Yes, that's exactly right. He said, what if God came down from the mountain to where we are? That we didn't have to figure out how to get up to him because he came down to us. What would you think about that? They said, that would be wonderful. He said, let me introduce you to Jesus. You see, Christmas paints an entirely different picture about how to be right with God. And we call it the gospel. It's the good news. But it begins with bad news. So let's consider then how to put God back into Christmas. And it starts with this understanding that Christmas paints the enormity of our sin. Now, Bruce Larson, the well-known Christian author, tells this story that a few years ago he was with his family on a bike ride in California. And they came across this sign, and the sign said, Naturalist Camp. And he thought, well, how cool. We'll go ride and look at nature. So he took his family down the path. Well, before long, he realized what naturalist camp means because six bikers came right along beside his family totally nude. And he's wondering what is he going to say to his kids about this when the five-year-old broke the silence and said, Dad, um, they're not wearing their helmets. (laughs) You see... He had a correct observation, but I think he missed a bigger point. That happens at Christmas. We want to celebrate Christmas, and we don't 
make the connection about what it says about sin. We don't like to talk about sin. Sin implies moral absolutes. Sin implies guilt and deserved punishment. Sin suggests that we're so bad that someone's got to come and be good for us. We don't like to see ourselves as sinners. We prefer to see ourselves as mistakers, don't we? And so if we mess up, don't we tend to say, hey, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Get over it. I will try harder next time. You see, mistakers don't need a redeemer. Mistakers need a cheerleader who will help us try harder. But the question Christmas makes us ask is this. If I'm okay and you're okay, then why Bethlehem? What did the angel say? Listen again. Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not save his people from other people's sins. Not save his people from sins against them. He will save his people from their sins. See, we make light of sin. And we assume because we make light of sin, God should too. We forget that God, who is light, can't make light of sin. We tell each other just to get over it, but you can't ask a holy God just to get over it. A holy God has only one perfect response to sin, and it's wrath. And if we don't like to talk about sin, we sure don't like to talk about wrath. Men get offended if you talk about wrath. I wonder if God is offended because we don't. Men's sin problem is the greatest problem God ever faced. Darkness, no problem. He could just speak and there'd be light. Void and chaos, no problem. He could just speak and there would be planets. The sin problem couldn't go away by God simply speaking. It had to be suffered. See, this was no last second answer. Look with me at Scripture, 1 Timothy. It says, it is God who saved us. Look at those six words. It is God who saved us and chose us to live a holy life. And he did this not because we deserved it, but because this was his plan long before the world began to show his love and kindness to us through Christ Jesus. And now he's made all of this plain to us by the coming of Christ Jesus, our Savior, who broke the power of death and showed us the way to everlasting life through the good news. The only way to get the sin problem to leave was for God to come 
You see, Christmas paints this, this mural of the absolute enormity of the sin problem. And that's why it also paints the essentiality of a Savior. The world wants to celebrate the coming of Jesus without acknowledging what he came to do. But the big story of Christmas isn't where was he born or even how was he born, but why was he born? And the answer came to the shepherds out in the field that night in Luke chapter 2. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. What are the angels implying? Simply this. Amos could not preach away our sin problem. Aaron could not sacrifice away our sin problem. Moses could not legislate it away. Miriam couldn't dance it away. Jeremiah couldn't weep it away. David couldn't worship it away. Daniel could not even pray it away. Only a second Adam could save the first see, only a man should die for our sins. Only a God could. And at Bethlehem, an answer arrived that only God could have conceived. A boy was conceived who was God-man. Now, I don't mean he was half God and half man. I mean he was fully God and fully man. That God's counteroffensive had his son pour his deity into a container called humanity. And what does that mean? That means that now God is fully susceptible to all of Satan's seductions. And yet the enemy never once got Jesus to live outside of the will of his father. He was born under the law. But the law couldn't lay a single charge against him. He was just what we needed. He was the perfect gift. A sinless substitute. Because as I've said before, if I was in one sentence to describe the essence of sin, it is this. It is man putting himself in the place of God. And in one sentence, the essence of salvation is God putting himself in the place of man. We sin because we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. And we're saved because God put himself where only we deserve to be. In Jesus, it was God who became visible, touchable, nailable. The Hebrew writer says in chapter 10, Now that's why Christ, when he came into the world, said, You did not want animal sacrifices and grain offerings, but you've given me a body. 
so that I may obey you. No, you weren't pleased with animals burned on the altar or with other offerings for sin. And then I said, look, I've come to do your will, O God, just as it is written about me in the scriptures. And what God wants is for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. One of my favorite Christmas stories is of the dear grandmother who was getting older and didn't really like to get out anymore and fight the crowds to do her shopping. So she thought, you know what, this year, I'm just going to send all my family money. So she bought everybody cards and she went to the bank and withdrew some money and she put it in neat little stacks, the right amount for every person in her family that she was going to send. And she mailed and she addressed all the envelopes, put stamps on them, took them to the post office. And she woke up Christmas morning and realized she had forgot to put the money in the envelopes. So Christmas Day, her family across the nation opened these cards that say, buy your own gift, love grandma. That's what all these roads up the mountain are saying. Buy it. You want to get right with God? Earn it. And this road gives you these rituals and this road gives you those. You see, Christmas says you can't buy it. Not the gift you needed. Christmas is a rebuke to every person trying to save themselves. Every other religion teaches what we must do for God. Christianity is grounded in the truth of what God has done for us. That was God with us on a cross. And he didn't die as a mistaker. He died as a sinner. Because he prayed a sinner's prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become. The righteousness of God. And this is the good news for all the people that the angels sang about. Christmas is God's announcement that God was willing to experience hell. So we could experience his heaven. You see, Christmas paints an incredible picture of the extremity of the love of God. Nails didn't keep Jesus on the cross. Love did. And that's why the greatest Christmas verse in the Bible is also the greatest verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I don't need Christmas to know God's powerful. 
I can look at the universe. I don't need Christmas to know God's wise. I can study creation. But I needed God to come to know He loved me. Only divine wisdom could birth this answer, but only divine love could let this answer be birthed. I argue that the manger is the second greatest proof in history of the love of God. And the first greatest proof was also made of wood. A lot of you are familiar with the name of Brennan Manning. He wrote uh, the well-known and very popular book, Ragamuffin Gospel. What a lot of people don't know is that he was not born with the name of Brennan Manning. Growing up, his best friend was named Ray. And he and Ray did everything. They played together. They dated together. They bought their first car together. They enlisted in the army together. They went to boot camp together. They served in the trenches of Korea together. And they're in a foxhole one night. Ray's eating a chocolate bar. As his best friend is remembering some of the hijinks they participated in in Brooklyn. When suddenly a live grenade fell in that foxhole. Ray took one look at his friend, threw down the chocolate bar, and put his body across that grenade. And it exploded. And Ray died instantly. After the war, the friend he saved became a priest. And when you become a priest, you're supposed to take the name of a saint. And he thought of his best friend, Ray Brennan. And he became Father Brennan Manning. And he says later, he was in the apartment with Ray's mother. And he asked this question. He said, do you think Ray loved me? He said, she got up off the couch, walked across the room, got right in his face and said, what more could he do to show you he loves you? But Brennan says, in that moment, he had an epiphany. He could see himself standing in front of the cross asking the question, Does God love me? And Mary coming right to him and saying, And what more could he do to show you he loves you? The God of Christmas loves you to death. This is the good news. We proclaim it every week when we gather around a table. I know a lot of guests don't understand. But we believe that when we take that 
bread. And we take that cup. That they are representing the flesh and the blood of God. That God was with us. And that God died for us. Because God loves us that much. So we're about to celebrate love with a meal. I want you just to bow your heads for a moment. What I'm about to ask you to do is very difficult. But I want you to try to ponder the enormity of this thought that God became flesh, that God was with us, that God died for us. Just take a moment and ask the Spirit to help you even begin to grasp the mystery of that. Oh God, forgive us for the the cavalier, flippant way we ponder the magnificence of the reality of Christmas. God in the flesh taking on skin and bone and blood because it was the only thing that could deal with the sin problem. As we take this bread and this cup, make the meaning of that become real again. In Jesus' name, amen. And I just want to make uh, one more point quickly, and it's simply this. Christmas points to God. What I've tried to say in this teaching is this. God is the author of the Christmas story. God is the main character. God is the hero. Listen to Titus chapter 3. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the star of Christmas is God. And so, the way I put it is this. You fully get the story when God finally gets the glory. Johann Sebastian Bach, arguably the most significant composer of music in the history of the Western world, believed that his gift was for the glory of God. And so at the bottom of most of his musical scores were these three initials, S-D-G. It's, it's short for Latin, solo Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. I think about that when I read the songs of Christmas. Read Mary's song. Read Zechariah's song. 
Think about what the angels sang. After they shared with the shepherds that a Savior had been born, they could not contain themselves anymore. They, they just had to burst out and fill the heavens with the words, Glory to God! Glory to God! We need to put God back into Christmas. And the angels showed us a good way to start. By filling the heavens with His praise. So would you stand up? We're going to have a season of praise to God while we praise the Lord. If you would like to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized into Him, you just come down to the front. We are going to respond to this teaching by making God, again, the hero of our story. And so, Father, I pray now in Jesus' name that you would receive our praise. We praise you, God, for your wisdom. Only your divine mind could could imagine such a solution to the problem we could not solve. I praise you, God, for your grace. Only your love could give us what we never deserved. I praise you, God, for your righteousness. You could not tolerate sin. I praise you for your wrath because it is just and pure and good. And most of all, God, I praise you for your love that we were worth the ultimate gift. God, I praise you. We praise you, God. We praise you, God. You're the star of Christmas. You're the hero of the story. You deserve all our hearts can offer you now. So receive in Jesus' name. Amen.